Anyway, so here we are. We're in our series, God commissioning his people for his purposes in the world. Two weeks ago, Ricky opens us up into this, and he shows us that, that um, God has commissioned his people for worship that multiplies worship, that leads to more worship. Then Pastor Bob last week showed us, the, or two weeks ago, uh, showed us the, the holiness of God's call on his people. God is a holy God, and when he calls his people to this work, it is a holy call. And he showed us that in Isaiah 6. Then last week, we're, we're really going to be picking up and, and continuing from this place. Last week, we looked at Acts 1 when we saw Jesus commission his church, commission his people for the mission that he left us here for. And that is to God's mission for us is to bear witness by his power to the king and his kingdom, wherever people are. And we, we saw that, uh, rooted it in Acts 1, 7 through 8. Now, I mentioned last week that we, were, we could have chosen any of the commissioning passages, what God intends for his people. I could have chosen any one of five. There's one in every gospel record, every gospel account, and there is one in the book of Acts. And I could have chosen the, the, one of the ones in the, in the gospels, but those happen at the end of the book. And what we're doing, what we're trying to build out, what we're trying to see is how this works out in time and in history. So we look at Acts 1, it's at the beginning of the book, and then we're going to get to see today how it all plays out. Remember where it starts, Acts 1, 7 and 8. I think this verse will be on the screen behind me. It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. There's things that God has not given us to do, to figure out, to, to understand fully, to determine all of the answers for. There's things that he has left for us not to do, for us not to be a part of, but just to be responding and seeking and following him. But this is what he left us to do. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is his mission for the church. Bear witness by his power to the king and his kingdom wherever people are at. That is what we have been left to do. And as we'll see today... As we walk through it, as we see today, there's lots of things that they did along the way. Serving one another, loving one another, providing for one another, uh, organizing as a body of believers. But they never lost sight of this missional call, of this mission that he had given them to bear witness to the king and his kingdom uh, wherever people are at. And unfortunately, I think at times we do. We forget. We get distracted. We give ourselves to building our own kingdom, establishing our own work, making our own way, focusing on what we deem important, trying to define the things that God has said aren't definable by us instead of seeking his mission. I hope that as we work through this that we'll, we'll recognize that maybe in our own lives, in our, in our life together as a church. As we study today, I want to call out two overarching themes that that I think you'll see, that I hope I'll be able to demonstrate to you from the scripture, gathering and going. We saw last week the apostles and the rest of Jesus' followers were commissioned to go, to, to go and bear witness to him. But what were they supposed to do with the believers that followed the Lord? And when they went out, what were they going out from? They were going out from a gathering, and they were supposed to be gathering people in. As they went out, they were supposed to be gathering people in. And, and what we see happen in the book of Acts, across the whole landscape of the book of Acts, is the big C church, the, the, the universal church, God's people from all places, 
spreading out from Jerusalem all the way across the region. And it would be represented by little c, churches, little c churches, local congregations, and gathering and still going, all the while worshiping and witnessing. So gathering and going, marked by worshiping and witnessing, I think that's the, the, the heartbeat, the, the thrust, the, the main point of the book of Acts, seeing the church spread out, seeing the church gather and go, worship and Witness. So we're going to start today in Acts 13, but I would encourage you, open a Bible. I'm going to reference a lot of verses that I didn't put on the screen because I want you your Bible. I want you reading from the text. And so uh, there will be some verses on the screen behind me, but, but open a Bible to Acts 13. Get ready to do some flipping um, just so that you can see the flow uh, and, and movement. But we'll read these verses from Acts 13. We'll pray and then we'll dig in. So here we go. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Let's pray. Father, would you be with us now? As we, as we study, as we seek to understand what you in your sovereign reign, in your providential purposes, what you have intended for your people to be about doing. The work that you've given us to do, that, that we can give ourselves to, find joy in, know the peace that passes understanding in the midst of, and, and, and know that is the hope of uh, humanity. So I, I pray, Father, that as your people in this room, any who are listening, that you would encourage us, strengthen us, and, and help us again to see the thing that you've called us to. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Bearing witness to Jesus was not an end in itself. It wasn't like Jesus said, hey, go be my witnesses wherever people are at, and that's enough. It wasn't an end in itself. There was a, there, there was a going out from him, going out from this people he had gathered from among the the Jews are going out from that and going into the world, that they were then to begin to gather people in, and those gathered people were to worship. The point of missions, the end goal of the mission, the end goal of witnessing to Jesus is worshiping Jesus. You may be familiar with John Piper's quote from the book, Let the Nations Be Glad. He, he writes, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. We, we go and we bear witness to Christ because there's people who don't know him and don't worship him, don't honor or adore him. That's the point Piper's making. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It's a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. When God's done, when he brings in the kingdom, a date and time and, and place and, 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 and season that we don't know, that we're, we're not responsible for figuring out, that he's going to ensure occurs, when that work is finished, we're no longer going to have to be going and bearing witness. But until that day comes, this is the mission that Christ has left his church. I, I agree wholeheartedly with this quote. 
Missions or bearing witness to Jesus is temporary. It was never meant to be an end in itself. It was meant to multiply worship, to bring glory to Christ, to make him known on the earth, to, 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 to express his fame to all who don't know him. And this has been the heartbeat of who we are as a church since we started. Now, I don't know if you, you may be less familiar with this, in which if that's the case, then that's my fault. But <clears throat> this, is, this is woven into the reality of who we are as a church, we ask every one of our members to recognize it, to anybody who joins this church, to, to adhere to it, to live in it, uh, as we spell out the things we believe. It's one of our doctrinal distinctives. And you go back, and if, you, if you've got one of the binders still that, that we gave everyone who's joined the church or anyone who's explored membership in the church, go read the fifth doctrinal distinctive, and this is what you'll find. The way church embraces a missionary understanding of the local church and its role as the primary means by which God chooses to establish his kingdom on the earth. We don't look at this as a place that we gather and consume. We look at this as a place that we gather to go. We gather to go to one another, to, to bring his grace and goodness to one another and gather to prepare us to go into the world so that his name is made famous. It goes on. I'll read the whole thing. These verses aren't on the screen, but, or, or these phrases aren't on the screen, but they, they are under this point, supporting this point. The church has a clear biblical mandate to look beyond its own community to the neighborhood, the nation, and, and the world as a whole. Thus, mission is not an optional program in the church, but an essential element to the identity of the church. We would go so far as to say, that if a church doesn't live for the mission of making Jesus known, it ceases to be a church. It's intrinsic to who we are. The mission is not just something we do. It's something that's been woven into the very essence of our lives. It goes on. We are called to make Christ known through the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit to bring his lordship to bear on every dimension of life. That's why you will hear me week in and week out press back against the false gospels of social ideologies and political ideologies and, and the idea that we can go into the world and, and rule and establish some, some, sense of the world, uh, uh, some sense of the kingdom without Christ being proclaimed. In the season of COVID, we, 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 were, we were pressed and pushed to, to do all these things that, that sought to make a law known, and, and, and an organization known. We watched as people argued over whether or not they had the right to disobey the government. But there were so few churches standing up and seeing the opportunity to see Christ made known in the middle of it. When the whole world was restless and outside of their norm and without comfort or peace, I think the American church, by and large, missed its opportunity to bear witness to the Christ rather than fight for its own freedom. And you heard me, week in and week out, press against that. Not because it's not, oh, we can fight for our own freedom. We can stand up for our own rights. But give me a biblical precedent in which we do that. 
And I will point you over and over again to a word that calls us to make Christ known no matter what the cost, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the situation, no matter what the government, no matter what the, 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 the world is like that we live in, go and make him known. Every dimension of life, from our families to our neighbors to the neighborhoods, to our places of business, to our politics, yes, to our, to our school systems, yes. There is no place we shouldn't be going to make him known. No circumstance we shouldn't be preaching his name into, that we should not be preaching his name into. The primary way, it goes on, the primary way we fulfill this mission through the planting of church is through the planting of churches and the training of their leaders. Our aim is that Jesus Christ would be more fully formed in each person through the ministry of those churches that God enables us to plant around the world. Seems striking and crazy that all the way back in the day we're writing this down as a little church that's by so many accounts seemingly powerless in the world. But God has given us great opportunity as we've partnered together with others and seen churches planted in West Africa where if we weren't going, they would never hear, so far as we know. We also believe we are responsible neither to retreat from our culture nor to conform to it, but with humility through the Spirit and the truth of the gospel to engage it boldly as we seek its transformation and submission to the Lordship of Christ, but not by conforming them to our way of life, but by preaching Christ and seeing them trust him and submit to him in faith. As God's people, we gather and we go in worship and in witness because that's who we are in Christ. Now, I've said a lot and you're like, oh man, I thought you were going to preach about this passage. And I am because what we find in the book of Acts are these things I've been talking about. I, I think I've shared this before, but the the whole vision of who we are as a church, the whole plan and purpose that, that we are as a church is rooted in the reading and the study and the flow and the examples that we see rooted in the book of Acts. We gather for worship as witnesses of God's glory in Christ and we go to bear witness to the glory of Christ among our neighbors and to the nations so that others may join us in worship, this pattern of living, this, this recognition of our identity is rooted right here in the book of Acts. And we see it starting, not starting, but being continued here in Acts chapter 13. It, it, it marks a major shift, but not the beginning of the work. It, make, it marks a major shift in the book of Acts. One of, the major, or one of the indicators of this major shift is that Peter is no longer going to be the central figure in the book of Acts. It's going to transition from Peter... To Paul, or they call him Saul at this point. Another, another indicator of this major shift is that no longer is the church in Jerusalem, the local congregation in Jerusalem, the central body of believers in But now we're going to see it's the, the church in Antioch. And I, I, put a, I put a couple of maps together so that you could see this. But on, 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 the, on, the, on the map, if, there we go. I don't know how, I don't know if you can see those words. They're awful small up there. I thought, I was hoping that they would be bigger. I'm not the one that built the map. You can complain to the ESV if, if you don't like the size of that font. 
But what I want you to see is down in the bottom, your bottom right, there's Jerusalem, Palestine, Caesarea, Caesarea sorry. And, and, and it's got this offset idea that Judea and Samaria is that area that's, that goes up just north of Capernaum. So this is, this, is, this is the flow. This is the book of Acts. And, he, and here what you're going to find in the book of Acts is that, that the word spreads out all across that area, all the way to Rome, up in the top left corner, from the bottom right corner to the top left corner, into North Africa. This little group of people. There's 120 believers that tells us in the first book of Acts. Starts in Jerusalem. Moves off into Judea and Samaria. That you can see that offset in. And it begins to spread all across the known world at that time. God does this work through his people. This pattern of living, gathering for worship as witnesses of glory in Christ. And and going to bear witness to the glory of Christ among neighbors and nations. So that others may join in worship. Is who the church was from the very, very beginning. And it's who the church is still to be today. And so we're going we're gonna to start here in Acts 13 and, and look at this. But I, I hope by the time we're done, you'll see that this is just who the church has always been meant to be. Who the church remains today. So, so in, in, in chapter 13, verse 1, now there were in the church at Antioch. And for us, I mean, we can read past that and not even think twice about it. But the, the, the very reality that there's a church in Antioch should be surprising. Now, I brought a second map that's going to show you just a little bit closer, give you a little bit better, maybe the font's a little bit larger for you because it's zoomed in. we got Jerusalem down on the bottom right, and Antioch is up near the top right. There's about 300 miles difference between those. Now, this isn't something you can climb into a car and drive to. It's not like that they had airplanes you could jump in and just get a quick, you can't get on the highway and go. This is not easy travel. But Antioch's not even in Judea or Samaria. It's not even part of the nation at this time. It's not part of the northern kingdom. It's actually in Syria. So the the church at this time, by the time we get to Acts 13, has already spread outside Jerusalem. It's already spread outside Judea. It's already spread outside Samaria. It's already making its way to the uttermost. But how does it get there? How, how does it happen? It's just, oh, God just did this supernatural work and it just a, a church is there. Well, he did do a supernatural work. But he did it through very normal means. His people making his message known, right? <laughs> Gathering for worship as witnesses to the glory of Christ. Going to bear witness to the glory of Christ among neighbors and nations so that others may join them in worship. And let's just show you. Let me just show you how from the gathering that starts all the way back in Acts chapter 1, we see the going and and we see them form this church in Antioch. We would go all the way back to Acts chapter 1 and Acts 2. If you flip back there and you just kind of summarize and just float along with me as we talk. In Acts chapter 1, we see Jesus commission the church. We see the church gathered and praying. There's about 120 of them. They continue to, to recognize the need for leadership. They install a new leader in place of Judas who had betrayed Jesus. Acts chapter 2, we begin to see the witness going out. The Holy Spirit comes down, as Jesus had promised. Peter preaches the gospel. 
And 3,000 people in a day, 3,000 people after one sermon profess faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm just going to tell you that would be amazing. I, like, I think any preacher, any person who goes out and shares Jesus or preaches Christ, I think they would be blown away if they had a response to 3,000 people. It's a big deal. 3,000 people that day are added to their number. At the end of chapter 2, we begin to see them organized loosely as this new group of believers, a, a community within the community, if you will. From Acts 3 to 8, if you just kind of walk through that, you begin to see them organizing even further, taking care of one another, raising up new leaders, because the, the demand, as, as the church grows, the demand becomes more and there's more leaders required. At the end of Acts chapter 2, Luke records for us that the church was, was growing day by day. God was adding to their number those who were being saved. And it goes on to tell us in Acts 4 that there was 5,000 men by this point in, in, in Acts chapter 4. It doesn't count the women for us, so we don't really know how big the church was at this point, but it goes from 3,120-ish to at least to, to, to 5,000 men and not counting women. So, so maybe, maybe there's 10,000, maybe there's 15,000. We don't know. It's just the growing, the number is growing. It's spreading out, but it's all in Jerusalem. Acts 6, 7, Luke records for us this. And the word of God, it's interesting to me. He doesn't talk about the work of the apostles, except by referencing the word of God. And the word of God continued to increase the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So this was making inroads. This was making, this is moving into every aspect, every dimension of life. Even the priests, those who were educated in Judaism, were renouncing Judaism and becoming obedient to the faith. They were submitting themselves in faith to Christ. And it goes all the way in, then through the book of Acts, through chapter 8, when we finally see a full-blown persecution break out. They'd seen a little bit of opposition. They told Peter and John, quit preaching. And Peter and John are like, well, no, we got to keep preaching. That's what we were left here to do. But full-blown persecution breaks out near the end of chapter 7, or in chapter 7 and, and into chapter 8. Stephen, uh, one of the deacons, one of the leaders that's raised up, is martyred. And as a result, this massive persecution, this scattering of believers from Jerusalem, they're run out of the city, and many uh, spread out all across Asia Minor. We move into Acts 8, 12. And if you follow that, Saul ravages the church. This is where Acts 8 opens with Saul, the guy who's about to be preaching and being a missionary and being the focal point of the book of Acts, is, is ravaging the church. He's going into people's houses and dragging off men and women and sending them to prison because they are faithful followers of Jesus Christ and will not renounce him. They, they continue to do the work. It's, it's, it's interesting. I didn't, I didn't point this out a minute ago, but even in the face of opposition, even in the face of persecution, they weren't cowering. They weren't backing down. The church was actually praying for boldness. Make us bold in our witness. No matter how costly this might be, make us bold in our witness. And then as, as it progresses, they have even more opportunity to do so. And, 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 and the church begins to spread out. They leave Jerusalem and they go into Judea and Samaria. And in Acts chapter 
9, or I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 8, after the persecution really becomes full-blown, Steve, or not Stephen, Philip begins to go into Samaria, and then he meets with an Ethiopian eunuch, which is presumably how it first finds its way into North Africa, into Ethiopia. And Paul, also called Saul, is converted on the road to Damascus. He's on his way to bring more people to jail, somewhere in Judea and Samaria on the road, road to Damascus. And he meets Jesus. And his world is turned right side up for the first time in his life. And everything that he'd learned in Judaism suddenly makes sense. Christ blinds him and then sends one of his followers to, to meet with him. And immediately it tells us that he gets up and begins to preach the gospel in Damascus. It's an amazing story. And then we come to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 21, and we begin to see how the church makes its way finally to Antioch. And in chapter, 19, uh, chapter 11, verses 19 through 21, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So here these people go out, and all they're doing is evangelizing those people that are like them. They're, there's these people who are living in Jerusalem, who are Jerusalem, J- Jewish Christians who are going out, speaking only to the Jews, preaching Christ to, to other Jewish people. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, people who weren't even of the original gathering. Right? They weren't in Jerusalem. They weren't eyewitnesses. They weren't the apostles. They, they, they were men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that's the Greeks, the Gentiles, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And we have this gathering that starts in Jerusalem. These gathered people begin to go, and what do they do? They preach the word. They make Christ known. And as a result, a gathering of Christians finds itself rooted, seated in a city in which there were no believers before, in Antioch. So from gathering to going results in another gathering. And, and that's, that, that sets for us a pattern. We, we didn't see it all played out. We didn't see it all broken out. But we see the pattern again repeat itself in Antioch. We, we see worship. Look at it in, in verse 1. They were, they were, there was in this church, in Antioch, these prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. As this gathering was gathered, doing the very thing that they'd been been enlivened to do, to worship God, to give their lives in service to Him. And, and that's actually, the, the, this word that's translated worship is actually connected to service. This is not people sitting around singing songs and, and doing things like we would consider worship in the church today. The word is connected to service. These are people who are giving their lives in service to the glory of God and the good of one another. They were worshiping in this way. They're giving their life to this, and they're praying. 
There's, there's worship, there's prayer and fasting. And, and, and it's the same pattern we saw in the early pages in the early church that's rooted in, um, in, in Acts 1 and 2. That they would gather together and serve one another. They would pray, fast together, seeking the Lord. What would you have us do? And then they're looking for the Spirit's leading. The Holy Spirit comes and shows them, speaks to them. Maybe not in verbal words. In fact, we're not exactly sure how it's made known. But that's clearly given the Holy Spirit's clearly given credit for this. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. There's a pattern that I, th- I think is right and good and natural for us to follow. It starts all the way back in Acts 1 and 2. Waiting on Christ, pre- praying and seeking the Lord's will, expecting, looking for the Spirit to lead. This pattern. Here they're doing it again. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Maybe this is one of the prophets. Maybe it's an overall impression that the church had gotten. Maybe there was a verbal communication in some way. But it becomes clear that Barnabas and and, and Saul, also called Paul, are supposed to be given to the Spirit for his purposes, for his mission. And, And once again... This gathering that had been established by God's people going is going to be responsible for getting up and going themselves. Not existing just to see how big they can get. Not existing to to their own purposes. Not existing to, to, um, to conquer the world. But to go make Christ known. It's interesting too that they don't the Holy Spirit doesn't set aside the whole church. The whole church is responsible in some way to, to reach Antioch, to continue to proclaim Christ where they are. But there's a work that needs to be done in a place where the work isn't being done. And so we see this pattern. Not only going, or not only gathering, but also going. So this church that is now called to go gets up and goes. They respond. They pray. They fast some more. They lay hands on them, and they send Saul and Barnabas out, and they become a church now that's going to establish new gatherings. This is the, this is the, the pattern. It's the process. We see it over and over again, and, and you can see it in, in Acts 13 on into 14. You can see this pattern unfold. In fact, so, so just following along now in Acts 13, Picking up in verse 4, they, they, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. That's John Mark, and he's going to cause a problem later. And Barnabas and Saul, Paul, are going to get into an argument and divide over, this, over his participation in the work. But he's with them at this point. He's assisting them now. And it says, when they'd gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish, a false prophet named Barjesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and saw and sought to hear the word of God. And so what do they do? They go. They do what the Holy Spirit's told them to do. They get up from their gathering and they go and they begin to proclaim the word. 
So they witness. They bear witness to Christ. And that's what we see in verses uh, uh, 13, verse 5, is they go out and they proclaimed the word of God. They didn't go, they didn't go and give a bunch of, uh, of self-help talks. They didn't go and give a bunch of, hey, life will be better if talks. They proclaimed the word of God. They didn't point people to Caesar to follow him. They proclaimed the word of God. They didn't place hope in, in themselves or do what we want you to do. They proclaimed the word of God. Of God. Over and over and over, this is what we're called to do witness to Him and His kingdom, proclaim His word. And they go onto this island, and before, man, I mean, you just imagine when things start, everybody's full of energy on the front end of a mission trip, right? We're excited. Oh, man, we're happy. And then, and then you get on the plane for that first ride, and it's like, oh, when's this going to be over? But there's all this energy surrounding these first moments. And the first guy that, that we see that they encounter, we don't know what the other encounters might have been, but the first guy that we see them encounter is connected to opposition. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We got God on our side. There's not going to be any opposition. There's not going to be any hardship. There's not going to be any struggle. No, we should expect opposition. In Acts 13, 6 through 10, in this story, we see that there's this magician that seeks to undermine their work, that's doing everything they can to keep everything he can. Elemis is trying to make sure that this proconsul, Sergius Paulus, doesn't, not, not only doesn't hear and understand the word, but will not believe it. He seeks to, to undermine him from following the faith. But anticipate the Spirit working. In verses 9 through 11, Paul uh, uh, it confronts him. But Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, recognize this isn't Paul's power. This isn't Paul working. Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteous, full of deceit and villainy, will not stop making crooked the paths of the Lord. Now, I, I was confronted with, not he was, he was gentle enough, but there's this guy that, lives in, in Tokal, um, and he likes to pray for people for money. And he walks up, every time I see him, he walks up and he starts just mumbling. He's not even speaking their language, just mumbling. And he holds his hands in a prayer-like fashion. San Fran, 100, 100 franc, and he wants 100 franc. And this time, I, I, I don't know why this was on my mind, but I rebuked him. I said, devil, get behind me. I don't know that that guy's possessed, but I don't know why, why I would think that he's anything but possessed. So you know, undermine the work of the Lord and pretend to be something he's not. People actually paying him to pray for him, pray for them, and he's nothing. An imposter. This guy, this magician using power, seeking to offer influence. Get out of my way, Satan. You know, you son of the devil. You got no place here. And he says, Paul goes on, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And maybe I'll try that next time, is just say, hey, be blind. I, I don't know. I didn't think of that this time. It would be crazy. Be blind. But he was. So expect opposition. It's foolish to go into a world in which the spirit is raging, the spirit of the enemy is at war and think that we're not going to face opposition. Giving way to opposition, but anticipate the spirit working and expect people to believe. 
Then the proconsul believed, this is verse 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the man going blind. No, it's not what it says. He was astonished at Paul's power. No, it's not what it says. Astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It's not a working of the power. It's not a working of miracles. It's not, that, that is not going to convert a person's heart. They witness the word. They, they, they proclaim the word of God. They bear witness to Christ and his kingdom. And that's what converted this man. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And you say, oh, that happened once. Well, how's that a pattern? Well, because it happens again. In fact, all the way through Acts 13 through 14, you can see this pattern repeat. In the second missionary journey, you can see this pattern repeat. In fact, there's theologians that have, have, have put this together and call it an appalling cycle of missions or appalling, uh, uh, appalling something to do with missions. Anyway, it's, it's the way he does mission work. But I think it's less about Paul setting out this strategy, and it's just the reality of the world we live in. You go, you bear witness, you expect opposition, you anticipate the Spirit working, and you expect people to believe. And I think that, unfortunately, the church, by and large, has fallen flat on so many accounts because we bear witness to all kinds of other Gospels except the one promoted in the Bible. We don't anticipate opposition because we think if God's in it, oh, it's going to be easy. You know, if, if, if it's God's will for our life, we'll have peace about it. If it's God's will for our life, everything's going to fall into place. If it's God's will for our life, I think we expect it to be easy. But why wouldn't we expect opposition? If Jesus said, hey, because they hated me, you should expect that they hate you, shouldn't we expect opposition? If Peter faced opposition, if Paul faced opposition, shouldn't we think and expect to face opposition? And honestly, I think, unfortunately, we often don't anticipate the Spirit working, so we don't really expect people to believe. Well, I don't want to be rejected because you've already disbelieved for them. I don't want them to, to not like me because you've already disbelieved for them. They don't want to hear this because you've already disbelieved for them. Anticipate the Spirit to work and anticipate the Spirit to give life to those who are dead so that they will, can, and desire to believe. A Roman government official longs to hear the word of God. We know there's, there's places in the book of Acts that go back and we can see that it was introduced into the island of Cyprus already. And he longs to have understanding. He longs to know more about it. He summons Barnabas. And even though his advisor is in his ear whispering lies and deceit, he still believes because he's astonished by the teaching of the Lord. They, they leave that place. 
They go into Antioch and Pisidia. In Pisidia, it's Acts thirteen verses thirteen through forty three. We see them witness again, and this is probably the longest sermon that we have of Paul's, where he goes out and he proclaims the gospel. He makes Jesus known. He starts in the history of Israel because he goes into the synagogue and he begins to preach and he begins to tell them about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. But he doesn't start with Jesus. He starts with Israel and he says, hey, our fathers were, were bound up in, in slavery in Egypt. And God delivered them and he made promises to us. By the way, Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises to us. And as for the fact, he goes on, as for the fact, he, he raised him from the dead. He raised Jesus. Like this is, the, this is the message that Paul is preaching all the way through uh, 13 through 43 is his sermon. And the response, well, the response was surprising. We want to hear it again. Tell us again. Come back next week and tell us again. And it tells us in verses 42 and 43, I'm sorry, in verse 44, the next Sabbath, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So they were so moved by it, so excited about it, that they go out from this synagogue meeting, all these Jewish people, and they start talking about it. And what do they do? They invite a bunch of friends. <laughs> Come and listen to this. Oh, that sounds pretty good. That didn't sound like opposition. Well, <laughs> until the Jewish leaders of the day saw that they were so popular and got jealous and a little bit threatened, and they stand in opposition. They stir up some opposition against them. But they bore witness and they expected people to believe. And actually they see people come to faith in verses 48 and 49. When the Gentiles heard this. So, so one week they show up in the synagogue. They preach the gospel. They're, set, they're told, come back next week. Tell us all about it again. The whole city turns out. They preach the gospel again. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. It's the same pattern. People believing it. And, and, and now these gathered people getting up and going and telling others. Going, gathering that leads to going, that leads to gathering, that leads to going. This is the pattern. Expect people to believe. But let's not dismiss the opposition. But the Jews, in verse 50, but the Jews incited the devout women on high, of high standing and the leading men of the city. So they didn't just, hey, let's, let's, let's get the guys together and stand up against this. They got everybody they could. The women of high standing, the men, and they brought them together. And they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Paul and Barnabas and those that were with them, it says, they shook the dust from their feet. It's almost like a, this is your responsibility. The blood is on your hands. The, the, your life, you're taking responsibility for it. You don't want us. You can have the destruction that's coming. But anticipate the Spirit working. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Imagine the ups and downs of that week. You go in and you're like, well, you know, man, this is going to be tough. We're going into the synagogue. These people are pretty devout. 
We preach the gospel, and people are like, we want to hear it again. We want to hear more, and they bring everybody in with them. But because there's such a big turnout, they begin the, the Jewish leadership begins to try to sow some unrest and show, sow some discord. And Paul says, hey, you don't want it. You don't have to have it. But hey, you Gentiles, this is for you. And the Gentiles heard it, and they begin rejoicing. But as a result, the Jews, more oppression, more opposition. Imagine the ups and downs of it. Imagine how discouraged it might feel. Imagine how the, 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 the mixed emotions you might be going through. But the disciples, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with joy. Over and over and over, this pattern breaks out into Iconium, into Lystra and Derby. Lystra happens to be the place where Paul stoned and left for dead, but he gets up out of the pile of rocks and lives to preach again. Until they return to Antioch, where they were originally sent out from in Acts 14, 27. I think this one is on the screen behind me. When they arrived and gathered the church together. So these, this church that gathered and sent them out, this church that became a going church, receives them back in, gathers back around them. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. You notice who didn't take credit for it? Barnabas, Paul, who did they give credit to? God, who had done the work. And who was their faith in? The Gentiles. This is the pattern that God has for his people. We gather for worship as witnesses of God's glory in Christ, and we go to bear witness to the glory of Christ among our neighbors and to the nations so that others may join us in worship. From the very beginning, this is who we've been seeking to be. That's why all these years ago, all those years ago, I sat down and started writing out little circle diagrams, of which I just wanted to remind you. <laughs> because in, 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 in the place that we live, success as a church is seen as getting as It's seen as growing to be as large as you possibly can. You're not successful if you're small. You're successful if you're big. And if you, if you draw in this large gathering, and, and I'm not against big church. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But we emphasize the size of a gathering over the amount of the sending. I have this theory. That God is more concerned about us going to the glory of his name than how big we can make our gatherings or our buildings. He is more concerned with more people being touched by his glory than he is by the size of our campus. So as a church that's planting and starting with this, this view of what God did in the book of Acts, I'm not against church growth that would grow this body. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not for small church. I'm just against making that our mission. I'm against standing up and saying that it's our mission to grow as absolutely large as we can and to build as campuses as large as we can to the glory of our name. But living every day going, this, 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 the neighbors and neighborhoods and places of business making him known 
such that if we end up with a church on the other side of town, or with, if we end up with a number of community groups on the other side of town, rather than asking them to drive across town, stay where you are and, bring, and, and gather to the glory of Christ's name so that that neighborhood is touched, has, has, has a touch point, has an access to that body, to that local congregation. Seeing the church spread out to me is a whole lot. It, it seems to be better in line with the pattern we see in the book of Acts than simply seeing a church grow for the sake of saying the church has grown. In fact, I'm just going to suggest, I can't prove this. I'll, I will ask when I get there if the Lord even lets this question linger. But I have a sense that the reason that the persecution started so heavily in Jerusalem was almost like that's the Tower of Babel moment for the church. That they grew, and there was lots of movement, but very little going. But he scattered them. I would rather us just get up and go than have to be scattered. Right? Let's just be obedient to his word. Let's just do what he said to do. Get up and go into all the world, wherever people are at, and make him known. That means, yes, in your neighborhood, and yes, that means into the deepest, darkest parts of Africa and places where the gospel has not been proclaimed. Let's multiply his worship. Let's multiply his glory. That's why later along the way, as we talk about worship that leads others to worship, I recognize, well, let's help people understand the strategy. And I, I, I commented on this from the from, from Matthew chapter 28, but this is the pattern, again, that we see all across the book of Acts, but it's just a little bit different language. Make, mature, and mobilize so that we see God's worship multiply. Make, evangelize, and assimilate. Go out into the world witnessing to Him, expecting opposition, expecting people to believe, and anticipating the work of the Spirit so that the church not just our church, but the church grows and begins to spread out. Mature them, equip them, organize them, uh, empower them to ministry. Train leaders that get up and go themselves and train leaders that stand up and stay and train more leaders. Make and mature them and mobilize them, the gathering and the going of the church, so that we get up and we go towards one another to glorify Christ in one another's lives. And we go into this world to see Him glorified in the lives of people who by all outward appearance may have some religious expression but are counting on that religion to save them and lead them into eternity. That's the city we live in. You see, we're not living in Antioch with a bunch of pagan people. We're living in Jerusalem with a bunch of Pharisees. Now it's changing there's a transition happening, but it's not taken over fully yet. And lots of people feel really good about their religion, and they're showing up in consumption of Christian material, but they have no faith in Jesus Christ, and they need you. They need me. They need us to go and make him known. And the truth is, If we're not careful, we can become just like them. 
We can gather for the sake of gathering, to consume a bunch of Christian stuff, or we can live and do the thing that God has called us to do because of who he's made us to be. Those who gather in the, to the glory of his name, those who go, go to the glory of his name to see others come to know his glory and join us in worshiping him. Let's pray.